This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lamb. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lamb. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, holy cow, do we have a good one. We have with us a partner at the legendary Israeli VC fund, Aleph, and now a best-selling author in Old Testament commentaries and business ethics, probably a first on Amazon. Michael Eisenberg is here, and we're going to talk about values creating value. So we're at the beginning of a new season for Good Faith Effort, a new year on the Hebrew calendar, and that, of course, means that we're going to start talking about the book of Genesis again. Now, Genesis, of course, is one of the richest, most extraordinary texts in the history of human civilization, period. And I want to talk about probably its most revolutionary teaching, certainly on the Mount Rushmore, and that is the idea that every single person is created in the divine image. Now, man as divine image bearer is certainly a stirring image, but what exactly does it mean? Now, perhaps it's a statement about universal human dignity or worthiness, right? So every single person, not just kings, but paupers, bear the same image. Or maybe it's the basis for human rights. Every single human being is due certain privileges by virtue of bearing God's image. Thank you, Kant. And the truth is, it's all of those things and more. But I actually want to call attention to one of the most compelling interpretations of the divine image that I've ever encountered. And that's the one offered by my beloved teacher and guide, Rabbi Norman Lamb of Blessed Memory. And in an essay, it's probably my favorite one that he ever wrote. I've mentioned it on the pod before called The Religious Implications of Extraterrestrial Life. Seriously, it's an amazing essay. So he wrote, and this is a quote, it's one of my favorites, an unprejudiced reading of the biblical text leads us to the conclusion that the capacity for creation is the primary meaning of man's divine image. And he points out that by the time the book of Genesis mentions man's divine image, so here's the sum total of what we actually know about God. A, he creates things. B, he assigns a special status or responsibility to humankind. And C, he makes moral judgments, right? As in, and God saw that it was good. So that's what we know about God by this point in Genesis. So when we're told that humans are made in God's image, what that means is that we possess and need to exercise those capacities as well. We need to employ our creative abilities to improve our world, the world in which humans live, and bring moral judgment to our stewardship of that world. And so in Rabbi Lamb's view then, technological creativity and moral responsibility go hand in hand and they're mutually reinforcing and they're both component parts of the virtuous life. And so how does this shake out in our era, which has seen more rapid creativity than any other time in human history? What does virtue look like in this world? And how can that great revolutionary text, the book of Genesis, help us think about all of this? So to answer these questions, I brought on someone who's not only thought about this at the deepest level, but actually someone who's lived it. He's a partner at the VC Fund Aleph and author of the now best-selling new book, The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. He's Michael Eisenberg. Michael, thank you so much for being here. Thank you, Ari. I would add, by the way, I've never read Rabbi Lamb's piece on extraterrestrial God's image. I would add one thing, and I agree with everything he said, which is it also tells you you're not God. One of the things about making idols is you create the God, therefore. And if you're in God's image, you can't be God. 
See, this is why you've been on my list of top guests from the beginning of this podcast. So I'm really, really excited about this. First of all, I'm extremely jealous because as I'm recording this, you are where I want to be, which is in the land of Israel. And I'm sitting here in my wife's shoe closet. <laughs> it's a big shoe closet. So you're now with my entire family. They've all uh, they've all left <laughs> or, or, or come home, as it were. There you go. Yeah. Well, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. I've been excited about this for a while. I think the work that you're doing, connecting technology and religious principles, is not just holy work, it's fundamental work. And it actually is the future for the next centuries of humanity. It's been lost in the secularization of society. And candidly, it's also been lost in the disrespect shown to peoples of faith and general disrespect in the relativism of politics as a new religion. And so we need to find these timeless values, and I applaud you for doing that. Listen, what you are working on now is precisely this project. That's why this book is so exciting to me. Pre-ordered it, and thank God I've been able to read a copy of it. It's just phenomenal. Starting right there, one of the things that really jumped out at me is when you're kind of describing your own personal background, one of the very first things you say is that being an investor, a successful investor, requires you to believe things and not just believe, but champion things that most people around you regard as entirely crazy. And I actually talked about this with Catherine Boyle of General Catalyst on a a previous episode, but this really brought home to me the way that successful investors talk is fundamentally familiar, most familiar to people of faith and biblical faith in particular, because that's how prophets talk. Let me put it this way. You could just leave that at the level of rhetoric. You know, they're both using similar tactics, pushing forward and believing, committing to things that other people regard as crazy. But I actually think, would it be correct to say that it's deeper than that? In other words, the kind of person who is actually investing in the hardware and software that's going to make the world better is, at least in principle or in theory, doing what the prophets are doing in the sense of looking forward to a better world. Prophets are doing it at the highest possible level of human accomplishment. But fundamentally, isn't that what we're supposed to be doing? Aspiring for a better world and understanding that we actually bear some responsibility in creating that world? Yeah, you know, you mentioned earlier the notion of Kant's view of of human rights. I'm not sure that God has rights, but he does have responsibilities. So anyone created in the image of God definitely has more responsibilities than they have rights, at least in my view of the world. And the fundamental premise of entrepreneurship, not just technology, but entrepreneurship is we can change something, hopefully for the better. But entrepreneurs walk around all day and they have almost like a scratched record. They get an itch you can't get out of. And they say, I got to fix this. I got to fix this. I got to change this. And I think that creative process is the work of human beings. And it's our job in this world, coupled with this notion of venture capital and technology, which says that if we take big bets... If we take asymmetric bets, we can leapfrog a lot of niggling problems in society and technology. And in order to do that, you need to be super optimistic about the outcomes. My partner and mentor, uh, Bruce Dunleavy, Benchmark, who, as I've written in acknowledgments of the book, is the biggest mention of the venture capital industry. Just an amazing guy. Once said that the venture capital business is about if this goes right and that goes right and this goes right and that goes right, well, then you got a big outcome. Right. And, you know, the odds of each of those going right are not that big. So you really need to be optimistic. Or as somebody pointed out to me recently, Rabbi Lord Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory would have said hopeful because hope is something you control more than optimism. But, but we have this belief that you can meld and control technology and its vectors 
in order to change industries, in order to change the world that we live in. The distinction I draw between entrepreneurs and prophets, and maybe maybe this will sound sacrilegious on some level, that you said that prophecy is at the highest level. So I'd say it's at the highest level of vision, but I'm not sure it's at the highest level of action. Mm. And I think, for example, if we look at Jeremiah, a large part of his frustration is he was a big visionary, but he was unsuccessful in persuading the wayward people of his time to get behind it. And I think the power of entrepreneurship coupled with this vision and optimism. With disastrous consequences, by the way, meaning the destruction of the first Jewish commonwealth, right? Absolutely. You know, difference between profits and, and entrepreneurs and venture capitalists is the profits don't necessarily come with the tools other than rhetoric to solve the problem. Whereas I think the entrepreneurs and the technologists and, and maybe the venture capital investors come together to bring the pieces together to not only have the vision, but bring the tools to fix them. The exception to that, by the way, in my view, is is Moses, who I think also brought the tools. And I think that's a lot of the discussion about the staff and the other various implements he brought to bear. But he came with the tools as well. So in other words, profits and entrepreneurs are sort of the why and the how of advancing the human condition and service to God. Yeah, I think that's one way to say it. Yes. In that vein, I sort of just want to begin at the beginning. Your book is such a rich text and there's so much in it. I really was struggling to not make this like a four hour conversation, but one of the most that'll make my wife. Yeah. yeah. (laughs) (laughs) One of the most interesting theories that you advance in the book is your interpretation of the first human sin, right? Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden as being the result of boredom. So in other words, primeval man has limitless time and faces no struggle for subsistence. And so eventually even the most like fantastic wonders of creation, gold, jewels, variety, the animal kingdom, even the Euphrates River itself end up losing their fascination for the first humans because they're just bored and everything eventually loses its, its luster. So is this how we should understand sin in general, right? Like is sin the result of the human desire for variety? Like a person might worry that a life where you just do the right thing over and over again might be really boring. So sin's a way to spice things up. So is that the origin story for sin? It could be. I'm not fully convinced that the story of Adam and Eve is a story of sin as much as it's a story of a failed experiment. And I think you could read it either way. Uh, Elchanan Samet reads it as adolescence, which I'm not 100% certain of. Kasuto has that reading as well. Yeah. I think the core point is, and so Adam and Eve are bored because their basic needs are tended to. All the trees grow in the garden. They have what I call universal basic income. And here, by the way, we come to a contradiction, I think, between religious optimists who believe in technology and perhaps secular optimists who believe in technology, call it Zuckerberg or Elon Musk, who are advancing this notion that we need universal basic income along politicians like Ilhan Omar and others. And my view is that the biblical narrative is really clear. Adam and Eve had universal basic income. The trees and and grass, which means wheat, grew everything they needed for basic subsistence. But man created nothing, and they were bored. They had no project together. They didn't need to do anything, and it's not like they had creative energy. They went out and explored, found gold, found the Euphrates River, and it was all kind of boring. So boring that they never talked to each other. In the Garden of Eden, Eve doesn't talk to Adam. She talks to the serpent. That's odd, okay? And not only that, They have no children. We don't think about this, but there are no children in the Garden of Eden. They only exist after man is expelled from the Garden of Eden. The first childless cat ladies. (laughs) No, but that's like a, it's, it's such a brilliant observation in the book, which is that Eve talks to the serpent because she doesn't have anyone else to talk to. It's ironic. You probably come home and you have some conversation with your wife about what you did that day. 
Okay. If you don't do anything, you might have very little to talk about. And so if your wife doesn't do anything, she may have less to talk about other than the kids yelling in the background. And there are no children in the Garden of Eden. So they have nothing to talk about because they've done nothing. And only when they are expelled from the Garden of Eden, either by sin or because the experiment failed, do they start to do something. Man is forced to contend with thorns and thistles, and he creates bread. It says, from the sweat of your brow, you will eat bread. There was no bread in Eden. Nothing was mixed. Nothing was created. That exists only in difficult conditions, in challenging conditions, in conditions that breed resilience and productivity. Man is only productive when he needs to be. And by the way, I think COVID has created the best living lab for my book theory ever, right? Which is in COVID, the government basically gave out universal basic income and lo and behold, there's a labor shortage. Why? Because people didn't do creative things and people didn't have children during the pandemic. It's not just the fear of the pandemic. It's when man is not creative, he's less creative in the most creative endeavor of all kind, which is creating a human being and a human life. And I think all these things are linked. And God runs this experiment, so we should learn, don't do this. Don't give out basic needs to people. People need to work not just to earn a living, but because they need to be creative. So if that's the case, right? So if one of the major threats that we have is boredom, and to put it in a COVID context, right? So I guess to borrow a phrase, man cannot live on sourdough starters alone, right? <laughs> like, is this why humans, let's say, should welcome mortality, so like death, the idea that eventually you'll run out of time here on Earth, so you only have a limited amount of time to experience things, is probably the best way we know to fight against the threat of total boredom and exhaustion with experience, right? So you want to live a long time, but if you live for an infinite amount of time, you'll eventually just be Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, hoping for the serpent to come along. So should this be grounds for opposing, let's say, another idea that certain tech visionaries are obsessed with, namely like conquering death or achieving immortality? Should we not want that? I think there's the philosophical element of it and the technological element of it, and I'm not sure they're the same in this case. Mm. So I think the philosophical element of conquering death is actually really important because it brings life and it brings alleviation of suffering and it brings medicines and, and everything like that. And I, I think that's positive. I think the philosophical or metaphysical notion that people are going to live forever is nonsense. But like going to space, which is aspirational, even if you can't figure out the practical application of it just yet, mm. I think this aspiration, quote unquote, to live forever, which again, I regard as nonsense in its practical application, is actually super important for advancing medicine. And this goes back to the venture capital thing. You need super aspirational goals of entrepreneurs and, and investors for asymmetric outcomes in order to move the ball forward. By the way, sometimes you don't get to the end, but still it's enough to create an outsized outcome and an outsized impact. And I think that in itself is important. And for what it's worth, I agree with you. I, I had a rabbi in the ninth grade and let's say he and I didn't see eye to eye on a lot of things. And, uh, <laughs> maybe I wasn't the best student, but one of the things, or perhaps the only thing I learned that entire year from the rabbi was an amazing expression. He said, the single most impactful English expression is killing time because once it's passed, it's dead and gone forever. And that made a huge impression on me. And uh, it's our most valuable resource. I love it. So another thing that actually leads me right into the next question, because another thing I found really important in your engagement with the early chapters of Genesis is your view, which is rooted in the ancient Jewish sources, that the curse of Adam actually ends up getting mitigated or even eliminated pretty early on in human history with the advent of Noah and his contributions to history. Now, one of the reasons this caught my eye is because it stands in tension with the standard Christian view 
that humanity is fallen, like we're irrevocably stained and tainted by the sin of Adam. And so there's no possible salvation without divine grace. Now, obviously, that's a whole incredible topic to explore in its own right, but it got me thinking about Silicon Valley and the world of tech innovation. Like, is the kind of visionary drive to improve the world and transcend our circumstances and the confidence that we can do that, that you find in Silicon Valley, is that particularly compatible with the Jewish view that Noah could actually indeed overcome Adam's sin and maybe it's less compatible with the Christian view of the fall of man? I guess I kind of wish that most people were thinking in these constructs, so I'm not sure it's an actual driver. But there is something more optimistic in my view of the Jewish view of the human being's ability to overcome. You know, the Jewish story starts in servitude. It starts in Exodus and servitude. It starts in Genesis in either sin or expulsion from Adam. And it starts in exile also with Abraham and, and even Jacob, who kind of comes and goes. It's a challenge. It's a struggle, but it's an overcoming that is the telling of the Jewish people, I think, and the telling of the Bible. And it's acknowledged that this is a struggle, but we can do it, you know, to borrow a half raise from Nike. Right. <laughs> so I think this is endemic to Jewish faith and belief that innovation is good. Aspirational wealth is good if used properly. And number three, even if we struggle or perhaps the struggle itself enables you to build resilience and overcome. And I think that's very entrepreneurial and tech entrepreneurial at its core. Hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So it's public knowledge, and you've even written about it, that you have a lot of kids. I believe eight kids last time I checked. I did. I did. I mean, I do. Right. <laughs> I, right. I, unless <laughs> unless I, there's something changed. <laughs> but in Silicon Valley, you'd be a huge outlier. Right. So according to the CDC, the birth rate in the Bay Area is actually way lower than the national average. It's even lower than the average elsewhere in California. So wouldn't you expect people in tech right, like a future-focused field that's supposed to attract visionaries, right, to be more like you, right, to have tons of kids? And why aren't they? It's a great question. I don't know. I can tell you this. You know, at Olive, our, our slogan is different is better than better. One thing I can tell you is turning up in Silicon Valley with eight kids. And when I started turning up in Silicon Valley, I only had two kids, but I was 25 or 26. That was already a novelty. And then I was married. Right, speaking of aspiration yeah. and hope, and, you know. But, you know, <laughs> it, it became almost a calling card. You walk into a room and you go, hey, this is Eisenberg. You know, he's got eight kids. And um, <laughs> it, it was definitely different in Silicon Valley. I, I don't know. I don't get it, uh, candidly. I saw Dan Rose had a Twitter thread today talking about getting married young and having three children and what an outlier that was. One thing I, I can say is, well, I say a few things. One is having children young, I think, is beneficial to entrepreneurship. I think there's a notion you can't juggle both. But I think the lesson of juggling both when you're younger breeds healthier interactions and builds healthier businesses, in my view. I think that's point one. Number two is there is this bizarre techno-optimism in some parts of Silicon Valley alongside kind of a real worry about the future. The whole climate change thing, which is real, has bred a level of pessimism in parts of some of the most optimistic people I know from a technological point of view. I, I can't begin to understand. I can't wrap my head around it. So I would have expected people there to have more children. I think getting married later which has become kind of a really American thing, for lack of a better term, in, in many parts of society. It's, I don't think just Silicon Valley has inhibited people's view of having children. And I think, by the way, this is going to sound, well, I'll say it as it is. When you get married older, people tell themselves the story, I need to be fully formed and know who I am before I get married. And I think marriage is a discovery process about a couple and growing together. And I think the more you grow alone, 
the less easy it is to have more kids and share that time and attention and love with somebody else. And I think it becomes a little overwhelming to the self. The birth rate in Israel is way higher than than in the average OECD country. And we are an optimistic country about the future. And that matters. So talk about it, because it's not just religious people, it's secular people too have higher birth rates on average. Why is Israel so optimistic? You would assume if you're an outsider that Israel would be one of the most pessimistic places on the planet, and it's not. So why not? So I'd say a few things. Number one, there's a cycle of optimism and resilience that tie into each other. We, we tend to think about it the opposite way. You can either be optimistic or resilient, but I think they're actually a self-fulfilling cycle or, or mutually beneficial cycle. So you send kids to the army at a young age, that teaches them about their own mortality. It also teaches them that they need to be resilient in the face of adversity. You know, it's hard to do these marches in the army and it's hard to stay up all night and it's hard and you carry a, a stretcher laden with sandbags. It's hard, but you build resilience and you build a notion of mortality. And part of being aware of your own mortality, which by the way, I think is lacking in Silicon Valley, people think they're going to live a very long time, is you want to have children because that's your legacy. And the earlier you get in touch with that, you know, the earlier you decide to have children. So that's one part. And then the resilience tells you, hey, I can do this. I can juggle a career. I can juggle family. I can juggle kids. I can juggle a wife. I can figure this out. I'm doing nine things at a time now under stressful conditions. I can do that. And then three, optimism is infectious. If a society is pessimistic, it infects other people. If a society is optimistic, it also infects other people. And I think the basic notion that we're going to make it here despite Iran, despite the adversity, and the fact that we are reminded of that daily. Remember when it's a permanent threat, it builds resilience and it builds the need to tell yourself, we can do this. And when you tell yourself we can do this, then you actually can do this. And I think part of the comfort of America, some of which I miss, without enemies, although China's on the rise, and I think that's a huge topic that's not sufficiently talked about, is that there's less resilience. And, you know, Darwinism would teach us that, you know, the fittest survive and they're optimistic about their survival because they keep reminding that they got to do this. And it's, I think, kind of core to what's going on in Israel. And I think it's important for the future of society. People are happy here because they got to fight. That's so fascinating. And that actually is a good segue into the next question, because I want to talk about somebody, one of the paradigmatic figures in the Bible who leaves Israel, comes back. And that's an important part of the story. But why is Joseph in the book of Genesis an important role model for entrepreneurs? Joseph is a fascinating character. We need to chart him almost from the beginning. So he's, first of all, the only one of Jacob's first 11 children that really doesn't grow up under Uncle Laban the cheat. And so he grows up in some ways in a less cheating environment, in one where the morals are really corrupt. And as I talk about in the book, where iterative game theory is at play, and, you know, I cheat you, you cheat me until the end of the game. And Joseph then grows up in the land of Canaan under Jacob's tutelage. He's had a different upbringing than the older children, which allows him to stand out and think other things other than maybe survival, which is what Jacob's older children learned under cheating Uncle Laban. And he starts to dream dreams because he's unencumbered by the challenges of the past. And he dreams these amazing dreams. And we don't fully understand them. Rabbi Salvechik points them out better than I ever did which is he's in a shepherding family and he's dreaming of a wheat harvest. And he's in a shepherd's family. The family business is, is flocks. And he's, he's dreaming of the stars and the moon, you know, extraterrestrials and space travel and the calendar. And this is really unusual. And he's challenging what's going on, the status quo. He's a challenger. 
And uh, that makes the the incumbents, his older brothers, uncomfortable. And they rebel. You know, you know, I'll tell you a funny story. One of my investments is Lemonade. When Lemonade started making some noise, I, I discovered that I have a lot of friends on the boards of insurance companies, traditional insurance companies in America. So start calling and say, hey, what's this Lemonade thing? Where'd that come from? What are you doing? And I think that's what happens when you challenge incumbents. They kind of wake up and they get annoyed and maybe a little jealous, uh, like happened with, with Joseph's brothers. And then they decide to give him the business, so to speak, and, you know, take care of him and send him away. And he then grows up in a foreign country where he's also an outsider. And he comes with a fix for an economic challenge, a big macroeconomic challenge of a famine, a terrible famine. And it has two components to it. One is innovation, storage and preservation of food, uh, technological innovations for the time. And two, he recruits the people to participate in this. And that's stunning when you think about it. He recruits an entire nation in which he is a foreigner. Right, in Egypt. In Egypt, yeah, to, to get behind this vast savings campaign and then get ready. And he did a brilliant job. And, you know, when the commentaries argue about Joseph, whether he did a good job or a bad job, because ultimately ended poorly. And I have a third view of it, which is Joseph had really good intentions and he did a really good job. But economies are really complex systems. And when you tinker with them, particularly in a centralist manner, as, for example, what's going on in China now, what's gone on in Russia for years, and I think what's going on in the United States and other places now with handing out a lot of money, we don't know. It is impossible to know what the outcomes are entirely. And Joseph discovered that after this giant manipulation campaign, you know, injecting liquidity into the economy, if that sounds familiar, it's because it is today, and injecting food stamps into the economy and moving people off their jobs, meaning their ancestral homelands, oops, it ended in servitude of his people. It ended in enslaving his people, his family, even though he was the hero, because people got angry at some point and they rose up against this genius who saved them. But they, people have short memories. That's how we know, you know, economic cycles have bubbles and crashes because people got short memories. And uh, that's what I think what happened to Joseph. And he's, he's a fascinating character. Now, what's interesting is that a key part of the Joseph narrative, really its driving force, if you think about it, is that is Joseph's separation from his family. Now, it's, it's imposed upon him, of course, right, because his brothers sell him into bondage in Egypt. But as Joseph himself later acknowledges, the end result is as God intended, right? So Joseph, in some sense, had to separate from his family. So if you read Joseph, and I think your reading of it is so incisive, and it was such an eye-opener for me, if you read Joseph as the biblical narrative of entrepreneurship, like the paradigmatic biblical narrative of entrepreneurship, so is the conclusion we should take away that entrepreneurs in some sense need to separate from their communities, right? And in this respect, is entrepreneurship maybe an anti-communitarian force? And if so, do we need to mitigate it? How would we do that? It's a really good question. I think there's there's two components to it, maybe three, you know? So let, let's start with this. We both grew up in Orthodox communities of faith, which are necessarily conservative. The head of my yeshiva, Rabbi Lichtenstein, once said that- One of the great religious thinkers of the 20th century moved from America to Israel, an absolute legend. You were very fortunate to study under him. One of the things he said to me in a private conversation is that our lives are a constant tension between conservative religious tenets and the need to innovate at the same time and move things forward. And I think if you grow up in a conservative faith community, it's actually really hard to think about innovation because we're kind of constantly constraining your creativity and your creative impulses. But I think we need to find that path, so to speak, of how growing up in a community that is conservative and has real obligations to conservatism with a small c finds a way to be innovative and entrepreneurial in a modern technological context. That's, I think, point one. 
Ironically, I think in the modern age, community is becoming an ever more important function in innovation, whether it's communities of scientists, whether it's online social communities, whether it's how you build loyal teams. You know, I'll give you another striking fact about Israel. The average engineer stays at an Israeli company about two and a half times as long as the average engineer at a U.S. company. Hmm. That's interesting. Loyalty matters. And so I don't know if you need to separate from your family. I would hope the answer to that question is not. But I do think you need to be able to be a different thinker sometimes than your family. Most people are not going to be entrepreneurs. It's a bug. And you need to be able to be okay. But maybe most importantly, kind of inlaid in the question you're asking, is as families and communities, we need to be able to accept people who try and fail. And that's hard. And it's especially hard in faith communities because we got to walk in a synagogue or church every week and they go, hey, there's Ari. That's his dad and mom over there. And, you know, he failed. Everyone here and you know the back benches of the synagogue, everyone's whispering about that. And that's tough. Exactly. And we say you shouldn't speak uh, evil about people. Most people do. That's why the Bible enjoins against it. And so how do you enable people without having to break through with their family and their communities to be able to take risk and fail? And I think Joseph, just think about this. He stands before Pharaoh, a 30-year-old inmate. We forget he was in jail. They just shaved him, gave him new clothing and says, hey, Pharaoh, let me tell you, all your guys, they got this all wrong. These people are your closest advisors. They're wrong. And not just that, you really want to point a smart guy. The only smart guy in the room is me. Boy, that's amazing. So Joseph basically goes straight from Rikers Island, takes a car to D.C. and immediately takes the job as White House chief of staff. Now, one of the questions that that raised for me is like a civilizational one. And this is something that your book explores really well. You write a great deal about the economic lessons we learn from the narratives in Genesis that are set in the ancient empire of Egypt, as we've just been talking about. Now, if you watch season two of the Bible, right? Like, I mean, no spoilers, but in the book of Exodus, Egypt is like the main villain. But if you only read the book of Genesis and you'd never heard of Exodus, wouldn't you come away with the impression that actually Egypt is one of the heroes of the story? It's a place that's welcoming to strangers. It allows people to get ahead. It uses innovation to create better outcomes, not just for itself, but internationally. So what's the lesson here for more recent world superpowers? The U.S., perhaps. So I tackle this actually in the second book, which has come out in Hebrew already. Now we're talking. <laughs> it's entitled Everyone Can Be Moses. It's actually of the three I've written so far in Genesis, Exodus, and Leviticus. It's the bestseller so far, which is interesting. And, you know, a little bit goes back to Joseph's innovations and Noah's innovations and, and Egypt's innovations, which is Egypt does start out as a really good place, you know, super welcoming, some lack of xenophobia. By the way, separate communities, the Jews can live in one place or children of, of Jacob can live in one place and Egyptians live in another place. It all seems to kind of work. But power for the sake of power and self-deification gets out of control. And so the way I would describe it is that innovation and economic success is not undergirded by timeless values and the humility that the human being requires. So if we go back to the first part of our conversation, which is what does it mean to be created in the divine image? It's you're in the divine image, you are not the divine. And Pharaoh thinks he is the divine. And there's a giant difference there, right? The prophet Ezekiel says about, about Pharaoh that the Nile is his and he created it. That's what he says to himself in his, in his haughtiness. And that's the way Pharaoh thought. And if that's the case, you say, I'm the innovator. I created the wealth. By the way, the storehouses are mine, and therefore I'm entitled to enslave other people because I'm the divine and they're created in my image as Pharaoh. And so what goes wrong in Egypt, in my view, is it's a society that transitions from being a reasonably good place that has some humility, Pharaoh who calls in an inmate to help him out, 
who's told by the inmate that God has the solution to his problems, the real God, to a place where Pharaoh assumes his own status as deity and loses timeless values. And the values become relativist in the politics of the time. And I think that's what happens to Pharaoh. The politics and the need for power change the fundamental moral, ethical, principled underpinnings of that society, and it corrupts itself by enslaving another people and ultimately destroys itself. This is why idolatry is one of the underrated modern problems, and ancient problems, but also modern problems. Totally. You know, idolatry, we think of as these little things. People worship, that's not what it means. It means I create the God, and therefore I am the God. Precisely. So you're a tech entrepreneur, or you're a startup founder, or you're a Silicon Valley visionary. And if I get to choose, right, so you're reading the entire Bible and engaging with it very seriously. And I think, by the way, that's where we're heading. Biblical religion, I think, is one of the great resources of wisdom. And I think that's starting to get even more recognition. You certainly see it in pop culture and you start, you're starting to see it in the world of tech. But let's say, you know, you're busy. You've read the book of Genesis because they've read your book, but now you get to pick one other book from the Bible to recommend to someone in Palo Alto or in Singapore or whatever it is who's going to work on the next great tech breakthrough. What's the book you're recommending? So I wrote these books actually out of table conversations with my kids around the Sabbath table. And then the book came out. When the book was edited and adapted in English, Adam Bellow said, you need to make this more accessible. The average Hebrew language reader has more facility with biblical text than the average English language reader. And he made it a better book, let's call it for Silicon Valley or New York or Miami or Austin, Texas, as the case may be. And I think the product, therefore, is really accessible. You know, Keith Raboy, who I have a lot of admiration for as a venture capitalist, tweeted that every founder ought to read this book. I mean, I saw that. It was awesome. That even stunned me. And uh, I was not as stunned. Okay. <laughs> it's a great book. <laughs> yeah. Gavin Baker, who's a, who's a you know big public markets investor, said, best book on venture capital. I sat to write a biblical commentary. And I think part of what's going on is the world moves in pendulum swings. And we've had a mass, what I would call secularization of society, and it's become rudderless on some level and relativist. And politics, Sam Altman once tweeted this, politics has become the new religion. Well, politics is relativist. And that's why when we see people lying one day and telling you one thing one day and the other day, there's no anchor. There's no truth. Where is your North Star? That's not a religion. And that's not biblical. And so when we get through Genesis, at least my view is the Bible goes in order for a reason. And so Exodus is the next book. And you got to trip on this Ten Commandments. And you got to trip on Sabbath. Because Sabbath creates timelessness, as Abraham Joshua Heschel says. It is an escape from time. And only once you escape from time can you escape from relativism. I think that's super important. You know, when I, when I wrote the book in Hebrew, I got challenged by the publisher that I should group the topics topically instead of by the weekly portion. But I think there's a cadence. And I think you got to go through Genesis and you got to go through the Exodus from Egypt and you got to go through the splitting of the sea and you, and you got to get the Sabbath uh, through all those hardships. You got to go from slavery, which has no Sabbath, to a freedom, which has Sabbath. You have to go from slavery, which has no private property, to freedom, which has capitalism and private property. We got to get through that. I think that's the great difference ultimately between Athens and Jerusalem, which is that Athens thinks in terms of systems and categories, but Hebrew wisdom is all about story. That's exactly right. You need to take the journey of the story. If you do it categorically, you're doing it wrong. I agree. And the thing about categories, ironically, is you can change them. You kind of reassign things. I always thought of word clouds. Have you seen these word clouds? Right. It's like, how many different categories does that fit into? That's kind of odd. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> the, the Kantian in me gets gets annoyed by that partially is part of it. But 
But the biblicist in me gets even more annoyed. So what are you working on next? What's your next project? Well, I got to finish all five books in Hebrew. I've done three. I'm in the middle of uh, numbers right now, editing it. It's all written in basic form. But, you know, my editor, who is also my Haruta, my study partner for this, Rabbi Amit Misgav, he's also an economist. You know, he pounds me to get it a lot better. So I got to finish that. And, you know, we're, we're already working on getting Exodus out in English. Like I said, everyone can be Moses. And more than anything, candidly, the project is creating a conversation around these topics, which you're doing such a good job of. And I think it's important that we put it out there. You know, Balaji uh, Srinivasan, who I have a lot of respect for, uh, perhaps the, one of the smartest people in humanity today and, and a seer of the future, he wrote me a note saying, ah, wisdom of the ancients for moderns. And I think that's right. And we need more of that. And that's what I'm hoping in conversation. But I want to have a modern conversation. I don't want to have a biblical conversation. Someone wrote me yesterday, by the way, who listened to me on JM and the AM radio, saying that she's buying this book for her children because they're tired about reading about ox. An ox that gores a donkey or, or gores another ox. She wants him to understand that the Bible, the Torah, has a view on artificial intelligence and cryptography and innovation as well. I love it. I love it. The book is The Tree of Life and Prosperity, 21st Century Business Principles from the Book of Genesis. It's fantastic. Order your copy. This has been Michael Eisenberg. Michael, thanks so much for being with us. Ari, thanks so much for this opportunity. But I want to finish with one thing. Can I tell you something? I'll tell, you something, per- I'll tell you something personal. So I love uh, it. It's personal for both of us. You just don't know it yet. So at the beginning of the book, I detail a company called Picture Vision and how I stumbled upon it. And um, right, right. It was like the first one that that got images from a from a camera to a computer or something like that. Exactly. Right? Or they could transfer images over the internet. Yeah. When you still had to scan negatives, there was such a thing as negatives before digital photos. <laughs> anyway, one of the things that happened is that was the early days of the internet. Nobody in Israel knew what the internet was, but I knew what the internet was for one reason. It's actually your dad. Um, <laughs> uh, so your dad, I don't remember the exact uh, function he had, but there was like some friends of Yeshiva University or something like that. I'm not 100% certain or, or the student body. And they had $10,000, if my memory serves me correctly, to give out as a grant. And they gave it to the Yeshiva University student newspaper, of which I was at the time the news editor, and they became the editor in chief to buy desktop publishing equipment. Now, desktop publishing at the time was brand new. There were two companies, Aldous and Quark big innovators in this area, but they couldn't get any self-respecting newspaper like the New York Times or the Harvard Crimson to do it. So they found, you know, a rinky-dink college, so to speak, in a college newspaper, Yeshiva University. And the commentator, that's amazing. (laughs) Yeah. And we agreed to do it. And your dad led the group of donors who agreed to give the stuff. Now, the funny part about this is we got a big screen and you laid it out online and then you had to attach it to a modem. That's how I knew what the internet was, 1991, 92, 93. (laughs) And we had to attach it to a modem. You attached it and it would take to send this file took literally eight hours. So we'd finish it. We'd package it as a file. We'd send a modem. Now we had to say a prayer, one that call waiting wouldn't come in <laughs> because that would disrupt the modem and you'd have to restart it. And two, that the file would arrive as is at FIT down on 17th Street, which was our printer. And so we said a prayer, went to sleep, woke up in the morning, went to prayers in the morning prayers, kept saying prayers that the newspaper would arrive and then took the train down to FIT to go, you know, see that the newspaper arrived. That's all because your dad that had my first introduction to what a modem was and what the internet was and what bulletin boards were. So please tell him I said thank you. I haven't seen him since, I think. That is unbelievable. First of all, shout out to my dad. Uh, he just made Aliyah, so hopefully you'll be able to see him in person now. That is an amazing story. There you go. <laughs> anyway, thanks for coming on. This has been amazing. Thank you, Ari. I'd say the core lesson of the Bible is that human beings have a responsibility to partner with God in advancing the work of creation. 
And in order to do that, we need a how and we need a why. And understanding that the how is tech and innovation and the why is the Hebrew Bible, its values, its wisdom, its unchosen obligations is essential for the work that we need to do to envision, build, and thrive in the coming generations. Anyway, thanks so much for listening. And if you liked what you heard, if you enjoyed it, just head into Apple Podcasts or iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts and give us a rating, five stars only, because it really helps people find the show. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lamb making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lamb. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. Follow Ari at Ari Lamb and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.